1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today my conversation is with Skye C. Cleary, a philosopher, writer, and university teacher. Her new book, How to Be Authentic, Simone de Beauvoir and the Quest for Limit, published by St. Martin's Press, is our topic of conversation clearly offers an introduction to Bouvard's thinking about authenticity and how experience and situations shape the people we become. For Bouvard, an existential philosopher, we first exist and spend our lives not uncovering who we are, but of constructing our identity. Authenticity is the pursuit of self-creation and self-renewal. Under patriarchy, women receive a set of myths that stand in the way of taking responsibility for our freedom. Through the experiences and milestones of friendship, love, marriage, children, and confronting death, we have an opportunity to choose who we will become. Because we live in interdependence with others, Bouvard's philosophy of the self and genuine living allows others to also achieve freedom in self-creation through reciprocity. Clearly has given us a lively written book drawing not only for Bouvard's life, but her own experience in self-creation. Here is my conversation with Sky Cleary. Thank you for sharing your book with us. Before we get started talking about how to be authentic, tell us about yourself and how you came to write this book.
2: Sure. Um so I I mean Long story short, um, I started, I I, I studied a little bit of uh, philosophy in my undergraduate degree, um, but it didn't really grab me. It was very, you know, an analytical introduction. Um, And it wasn't until I was studying for an MBA, because I went and worked in financial markets for a while, and yeah, I then went and did an MBA. And the place where I did my MBA at Macquarie University in Sydney, uh, there were some philosophers on faculty who would teach courses, um, MBA courses with, you know, philosophy as part of them, like existentialism and entrepreneurship and, you know, organizational behavior about, you know, existential dynamics in the boardroom and foundations of management thinking. Uh, And I was Astounded, I was like, "Wow, why wasn't I taught this in my undergraduate degree?" And one of the the teachers, one of the professors, recommended um, some books on Simone de Beauvoir because I'd asked, you know, what do you rec, what, what should I read? And started reading. Um, I think the Mandarins was the first of Simone de Beauvoir's books that I read, and and I was just hooked. And it was also about that time that uh, another book uh, came out. Called Tete Tete by Hazel Rowley, and which was all about the relationship between Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre. And I was and they seemed to be dealing with similar questions that, that I was facing at that point in my life about you know, the tensions between you know, freedom and responsibility and you know, career and boyfriends and family and trying to balance balance time. Um, and you know, questions of what it me- means to be authentic, and how can you, um, I guess, live authentically when there are so many pressures on you from from other, uh, you know, whether it's friends, family, culture, that sort of thing. So I started to get really interested in in the, the, I guess, the language and the framework that uh, especially Simone de Beauvoir kind of talked about. Um, So... Yeah, and then it started on with my, my other book that you already know, um, Existentialism and Romantic Love, because I think the most pressing question for me at that point was about romantic relationships. Um, and But yeah, and then sort of authenticity was something that was always in the back of my mind that I was trying to, to work through and... Was yeah, at some point a few years ago, it was like right. I need to dig into this deeper, and I know Simone de Beauvoir has a lot to say, but of course she doesn't. You know, she is not. She didn't write a specific book on authenticity, and it's sort of infused throughout a lot of her different works. And so this book was um, how to be authentic. My new book was about trying to you know untangle some of those ideas and 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 um, figure out you know a cohesive idea of, of Beauvoir's view of authenticity.
1: Okay, well, you know uh, the word authenticity gets thrown around a lot. <laughs> but before, before we go to that one, I want to ask you: for some of the listeners who may not know who Simone de Beauvoir is, can you talk t- say something about who she was and why she's still re- relevant?
2: Yeah, sure. So, Simone de Beauvoir. It was so she grew up in or she lived in Paris um, she was born 1908 died 1986 and she was you know she was a child during World War one and was it was they um, lived through World War two and it was really around that time you know before during and after World War two that she really focused on writing and you know, Back then, it was, it was a really bleak time in, in world history. There were just a lot of, you know, political uh, tumultuousness and, you know, people were asking questions and Simone de Beauvoir was asking questions, you know, how do you live amidst these, these horrors and how, how do we know what to do? How do we think about what our responsibility to others is?
1: How did she, I know that she was an essentialist, How is she different from other existentialists? What makes her existentialism unique?
2: Yeah, so, well, first of all, I'll say she really pushed back on the label of of existentialist. Um, It was something that I think Gabrielle Marcel started calling Jean-Paul Sartre, um, who was uh, Beauvoir's lifelong partner, and, you know, people just started calling Beauvoir and Sartre existentialists, and they pushed back on it for a while because they you know, part of their philosophy is not being defined by labels specifically. They're like, we're so much more than any specific label or role can can sum us up in. Um, But, you know, at some point, you know, it sort of got out of control and they just said, okay, well, fine. If we have to be called something, fine. Um, Call us existentialists. Um, Although I I try and say existential philosophers because I guess they were philosophers first and, you know, existentialism was kind of their... um, Flavor, I think. And why I think Beauvoir is different is because she systematically tried to look at ethics from an existential perspective. And so Jean-Paul Sartre, for example, he wrote Being a Nothingness and, and you know, he kind of touched a, a tiny bit on, on ethics and said in a footnote in Being a Nothingness that um, at some point he would write, you know, a book on ethics, but but he never did. And it was really Beauvoir um, starting with essays like The Ethics of Ambiguity in, and Pyrrhus and Seneas that she really focused on ethics. And the question is, well... If God is dead, does anything go? And that was kind of Dostoevsky's you know, idea, and you know she really searched hard for for an answer to that question um, throughout a lot of her different works. So it's sort of this sustained, you know, consideration of of you know how do we found an ethics if there is no God that's going to punish us for not respecting other people and what she came up with in the ethics of ambiguity and elsewhere, that it's really, you know, this idea of, of intersubjectivity, which is uh, we find, we confound ethics in our relationships with other people because we coexist because we share the same human condition.
1: Okay. So, uh, back to authenticity, which is the title of your book. Uh, so what does it mean to be yourself? I mean, authenticity is kind of like, oh, you say, oh, this person is very authentic. I just want to be authentic. I want to be true to myself. What does it mean to be true to yourself? What does it mean to be authentic?
2: Yeah. So first of all, I would say that Beauvoir's idea of authenticity isn't about being yourself as it is about becoming yourself. So it's that's that's an important distinction because her idea of authenticity is very, outward looking. It's about engaging in the world with with other people. It's about going and doing things. And it's not a process of, you know, armchair philosophizing where, where you sit and you try and peel off the layers of your being like an onion to find whatever, you know, uh, hard, authentic self there is inside. You know, for Beauvoir, you know, I, okay, think about a painting. When we're talking about a painting, you can talk about it being authentic in terms of, oh, was this paint? Was this the original? Was this painted by the author who claims to have painted it? So it's a static thing. But when it comes to human beings, we're not static things. You know, we're always growing, we're always changing and becoming more than we are. And so for Beauvoir, it was. It's meaningless to talk about you know, authentic in terms of looking for whatever fixed original self there is with inside, inside yourself. Rather, authenticity is, it's a process of becoming. And this comes from the existential idea that existence precedes essence. So we exist first and then we create our essence. We create who we become. And that's a way of, of expressing our freedom. Um, so yeah, very more more outward looking and you know dynamic. So authenticity is therefore you know a process in Beauvoir's, um, uh idea of it.
1: Now Bouvard in his her book The Second Sex really talked a lot about how women pretty much uh, give up their freedom of self creation and become inauthentic uh, very easily. Uh, can you talk about? how how women as she saw it and you see it because you put yourself a lot into the book you talk a lot about your own experiences uh what are the particular traps that women have that really keep them from fulfilling that authenticity and and really exercising their freedom to become who they would like to become
2: yeah so there's there's a lot of what Beauvoir called mystifications um about, and which are sort of false ideas and myths about who we are, who we're supposed to be, what what is natural for for us to do. And mystifications are often used as as a form of oppression. And Beauvoir thought mystifications were a way of keeping women as the second sex, which is the title of her most famous book, which was written in 1949 called The The Second Sex. And one of the biggest mystifications when it comes to, to women uh, is that there is this thing called um, like the eternal feminine, or you know some kind of feminine nature, or even masculine nature that are these uh, fixed essences that we have depending on what you know sex organs where we're born with, but for Beauvoir, because existence precedes essence, you know, there's there's no such thing as like masculine or feminine nature, rather. The way we become women or the way we become men uh, is very much shaped by our context, by our situation, by you know what we're rewarded for or, or punished for. Um, and so this is a particular problem for women because they're brought up to be pretty and passive and not to take up space whereas boys tend to be brought up to be masculine, which is all about being strong and, and climbing trees and, and being rough. And so although Beauvoir focuses mostly on, on women and how this presents a problem for women in the second sex unit, you know, she also does acknowledge that these mystifications channel men into specific roles as well. And they, you know, in some ways actually, um, like for example, girls are, um, now, you know, not punished for wearing more masculine clothes, but boys can't wear feminine clothes and dresses in the same way that girls can. So, so in some ways they're, they're, um, kind of policed or they're, they're the way they present themselves is, is policed as well.
1: Okay. So how does, um, self-creation, that process interact with others who are also self-creating? So, uh, are we, it, does that lead to some sort of conflict? Uh, how do we encounter that?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, she Simone de Beauvoir thought that you know really the problem. One of the biggest problems we have uh, between the sexes is that um, we've sort of evolved to have our you know, interpersonal relationships based on domination and conflict. And um, she saw friendship as a really important way to, to kind of overcome this, this tension. And she's like, well, actually the real task of, of feminism is to um, try and change the way the world operates from domination to freedom. Um, and so on a personal level, Bouvard talked about um, the in existential terms. There are a couple of different dimensions of being. There is being for yourself, which is sort of this, you know, choosing your your own life from you know a range of options, but also being for others because we live in contacts with other people and authenticity isn't just about being for yourself because that you end up in you know self self-interest and and egoism and of course Beauvoir thought that we can only become authentic through our relationships and engaging with other people so being for others is really important as well um, but so often being um, being for others or being with others is a very kind of, as you say, full of conflict and and tension, and and it's a hostile relationship. And this was something that, say, um, Jean Paul Sartre talks a lot about in in being a nothingness. But Beauvoir thought that we can overcome these tensions by developing friendly relationships with others, like trying to find a kind of a harmonious being with others. So finding a balance between, you know, being being for others and being for ourselves. And this kind of tension, she thought, could be um, managed with what I was talking about before, intersubjectivity, which is the mutual um, recognition of one another's freedom and, and facticity. Um, now, that's not to say that we should obliterate all conflict between people because, you know, there is such a thing as constructive criticism and constructive conflict that can uh, call our being into question. And that's why she thought, you know, great friends are, aren't people who just tolerate you and, and say yes to anything you do. But great friends are really ones who push you and challenge you in in, in safe ways.
1: Well, it's like what you're talking about, beans for others. It seems that women have a real talent for that
2: yes and she, exactly and she's yeah you're right and that was one of the mystifications that she talked about that you know women are kind of groomed into being for others to to give everything and this is one of the mystifications of of the ideal mother you know an ideal mother is someone that you know obliterates her whole self for the child or um you know the perfect wife is someone who obliterates themselves for their partner and you know this manifests in in a lot of different ways that women are expected to be caregivers and of course we see this in um in jobs as well where women are the ones who are kind of channeled into caregiving roles that are, that are paid less whereas men are, tend to be channeled into you know higher paid jobs that uh, and taking on leadership positions and i mean just look at you know how many fortune 100 or 500 companies are run by women very few and even fewer by by women of color so this kind of um notion that women are expected to be for others um rather than um you know for themselves is you know really one of the critical problems that that beauvoir talked about in the second sex and this is one of the reasons why I think she's still so relevant is is because we're still seeing the same problems that right. she was dealing with.
1: And even in the office in, in corporate office you have women or like the office wife the office mother the office counselor, the office, office, uh, you know, comforter in chief. It's, you know, it's the women uh, who
2: take that up. Exactly. And you know, and one of the the things behind this is like people say, Oh, well it's just women are naturally better suited to that. But Bevoir was like, No, it's not nature. There's nothing, you know, at the core, it's it's socialization that pushes women into these caregiving roles. And caregiving is expected of women. Like caregiving. Women are expected to, to give and give of themselves until sometimes until until there's nothing left. And actually Kate Mann in Down Down Girl uh talks about um this famous story um Shel Silverstein's um The Giving Tree and how literally the it's the story about a mother who who gives herself until there's nothing left and this story is is kind of valorized as the ideal motherhood but you know Kate Mann um says that this is actually you know a really terrifying and atrocious story and I think Beauvoir would agree with that.
1: So uh, you follow uh, Simone de Beauvoir's "The Second Sex" in some of the uh, the framework, but she, she starts with fr- you start with you start with friendship and talking about friendship being sort of the uh, true friendship, a uh, healthy friendship is sort of an ideal situation. Um, so how is a friendship a good model uh, for? relating to others i mean uh and how how can that translate to other things like uh motherhood or a romantic relationship
2: sure um yeah so friendship that's based on what i was talking about intersubjectivity that is um uh, a relationship that's reciprocal and cooperative and and constructive and makes space for the other person's freedom the other person's subjectivity um is you know that kind of what she was talking about with with this ideal friendship and ideal relationships and yeah as you say that's kind of the foundation of of all relationships um you know one of the things she talks about is that in romantic relationships so often it's, you know, certainly throughout history is that women were channeled into this, even if it's not the romantic ideal, but channeled into getting married, um, being defined by by who they were married to, um, and, you know, ex- often expected to either give up their career or take a back seat in, in their career for for their, their partner, um, and which creates all sorts of you know, oppressive structures and and power games within uh, love relationships because it comes back to to this idea that women are supposed to be for others, and we see that so often in in marriages, um, and that's kind of the traditional idea of marriage. Um, and but Beauvoir thought that you know, romantic relationships could be so much stronger and so much better if they were based on this idea of of great friendship, of, of intersubjectivity. Um, and so that, and so you were also asking about how that translates into, into motherhood.
1: Yeah, that's, a, that's a particular, I have some particular questions about that because historically it's been a short time since we've actually have made motherhood, motherhood has become a choice. Now we're kind of in, in this kind of, you know, weird place, but, um, Historically, women have not been able to make that choice very effectively. Uh, And in a relative free situation as we are today, and I say relative. (laughs) In some places, yeah. In some places. How does choosing motherhood require, uh, does it require us that you know what you're getting into? And if you're a first-time mother, you really don't know what you're leaping into. It's a leap of faith. You don't know what you're going to get. And the thing about it with a ch- mother-daughter, a mo- mother-child relationship, a child has to be socialized into being, uh, understanding mutuality of the relationship. Because, you know, they're not born knowing that. Uh, so how, what, is, what, what does it mean to be an authentic in motherhood? In both the choice and how it plays out with a child who doesn't uh, understand mutuality.
2: <laughs> yeah, this is a good question. And Beauvoir's definition of authentic love in the second sex is a mutual recognition of two freedoms and neither person mutilates themselves, neither person um, kind of gives up their their freedom. And so, of course, yeah, as you say, the, the question is, well, okay, you know, a child isn't Exactly free. Um, they're not, you know, responsible for their actions. But, you know, I think Beauvoir suggests that there is there are possibilities for authentic motherhood. And first of all, is what's critically important is having a choice. Um, you know, and, and yes, I I had no idea what I was getting. M- most women don't have any idea what what they they're getting into, um, and. You know, maybe that's part of the kind of conspiracy theory to, you know, to, to push us into these ideas of, you know, uh, the ideal mother is one who is, like, loves being in her role and who doesn't complain and who, like, is just, and, and if you're not that kind of perfect mother, then then maybe there's something wrong with you. You know, these are sort of some of the, the mystifications that, that are around. Um and so I think the way we apply Beauvoir's philosophy in motherhood is thinking about, you know, the relationship and how, you know, parent. I, I mean, I'm saying motherhood. I mean, parenthood or or caregiving is about kind of nurturing the relationship um, and you know supporting children in understanding that the best foundation for relationships is into subjectivity and showing them and being a good role model for, for that.
1: So, yeah, I'm just wondering if one of the tasks of parenting is to ch- teach your child that there is a limit to what the parent gives. Yeah. That, that and, there's a boundary, mm-hmm. you know, mother, mother or father can't be here for everything and do everything for you.
2: Yeah, it's it's an exercise in supporting your kid and becoming independent and you know but in safe ways, you know you don't want them you know just running out onto the street, you know that there, there's there's a role for for parenthood to to put limits on it, but it's like yeah, I think you're right. It's about um, creating a, a context in a situation where children can learn in in safe ways until they're you know old enough to, to take responsibility for their own actions.
1: And right, and that their mothers mothers have a life outside being mothers.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, Beauvoir says in the Second Sex, I don't uh, remember the quote exactly, but something like you know, the mother who has the richest life will have the most to give her child because she has, you know, diversity of of experiences and activities and things and and will be the most capable of of kind of supporting her child in in exercising their own freedom and and flourishing in the world.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
1: So what? Do you, so what do you think uh, the the dangers of motherhood are today? Are they mostly cultural dangers?
2: Yeah, I mean. So I think the most obvious danger is not being able to choose it and to be thrown into a situation that that you are not prepared for and don't want to be in. And Beauvoir back in the 1970s and and 60s was fighting really hard in France for um, women's right to access birth control and abortion. And so, I I mean, yeah, I think that's – that making sure that motherhood is a choice that we can take on seriously and take full responsibility for. Because, you know, I was like, you know, if you don't have a choice in some things, how, you know, it's absurd to ask people to be responsible for things they didn't choose.
1: Right. But once you're in it, Once you're in a situation that you got through a lot of, a lot of situations in life are situations that we're thrown into life. We're not, not even just motherhood, other situations, you know, we didn't choose it. We just like, we don't choose our parents, you know, a lot of things where we were born uh, and we have to deal with the world. That's kind of we're thrown into.
2: Yeah. And this is what I think would have, referred to as our facticity so the facts of our existence I mean life is is we're thrown into life we don't choose to be born um and but I think Beauvoir would say yeah okay so sometimes we do find ourselves in this in these situations that we didn't choose but you know the thing is what's important is that the past we we are we're the sum of our actions so we are the sum of these choices that that we've made in the past that make us who we are now but that's not all we are we're also how we project ourselves into the future we're also those goals we set for ourselves and how and the attitude with which we orient ourselves towards those those ends so fine we need and i think what she would suggest is that yeah we need to embrace who we are okay we can't change the past but focus on where we're going focus on on the future
1: Right, and how the, the different choices uh, within the freedoms that we have to make the choices that are most authentic to us, that who we want to become. Okay, let me, let's go into this. Uh, what does uh, authenticity have to do with, uh, how does it work with the freedom to self-create? How does it work when you're dealing with old age and you're facing death? And maybe your time horizon is not, you know, 20, 30 years.
2: Yeah. And in fact, Beauvoir saw this as one of the biggest questions of life. You know, if you're lucky enough to make it to old age, which, you know, not not everyone is. um, And, you know, she saw she actually wrote a a whole book about aging called Old Age, which isn't a very famous book. Um, Sometimes it's called Coming of Age. And but it's it was her trying to come to terms with with growing old and and death. And how do you keep you know, being enthusiastic about life when, when you don't actually have much life left, um, and she and she also saw that it um, to be a real problem that our societies and not just our current society or her current society, but so many societies are, are ageist in many ways. Um, and and she, she, oh, she,
1: by the way, she was too. She had a very, you
2: know, she was oh, yeah.
1: she was forty years old, and she thought her life was over.
2: Yes, she did. And she thought she'd never have sex again. And you know, when, when um a younger man called her up and asked her on a date when she was 39, she like had she was beside herself because she didn't understand that she could be a sexual being at, at the ripe old age of 39. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, she was she was ageist and she'd internalized you know a lot of ageism. Um and in the book Old Age, she talks about it in terms of um, old age in terms of exus and praxis. So adults are mostly praxis, so they're they're doing, they're transcending, they're, you know, working and they're useful to society. Whereas children and older people are exus. So they just they just exist. They're not really, you know, being being productive. But the difference between children and older people is that children are going to be future praxis so they're going to be in the future they'll be useful to society but you know older adults are are discriminated against so much because they're they're treated as if they don't have potential as if they don't have have a future and uh you know I thought it was crazy that people um, are creating policies and, and laws that discriminate against older people because those people in power are the ones who are going to be old themselves in, in the future. But the thing is that a lot of those people in, in power um, are wealthy and they don't fear and they can sort of slide into old age comfortably um, themselves. I think one of the
1: big problems with the old age, and I kind of wonder what you think about this, is that if you've been making choices and you're becoming yourself, you could get to the end of your life and say, I don't like what I've become. You have made so many choices that are layered upon layered upon layer that have taken you in so many different ways that you may not like what you became. And I think that that's where you have a lot of bitterness in old age because people have a lot of, uh, you know, what do you call it? They regrets. The regrets, they are regretting lots of choices yeah. that they've made.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, and I think that's, the beauty of Beauvoir's existentialism is that she kind of says, you know, it's never too late to change. You know, what matters is what we do with the time we have left. We're never complete. We're never done until we're actually dead. Um, and so she's like, sure, growing older can kind of triggers like an identity crisis um, for, for reasons such such as you mentioned. But you know, she's she says, you know, it's um, sorry i'm trying to remember some of her quotes and she says you know don't gamble on the future act now without delay like no you still you still have time left so you know we should be throwing ourselves into projects and it's sure our the facticity of our life you know our bodies mightn't be as um vibrant as as they were but she's like whatever facts of our life, fine. Let's let's acknowledge those and and look for whatever window of freedom we do have left. So let's let's not die before we're dead. And that's kind of one of the big messages of this old age, which she wrote when when she was growing old and trying to help herself uh, come to terms with it and think about how to how to how to project herself forward. But it's not easy, and it, she really really struggled with it.
1: Well, you in your third part of your book, you talk about uh, self sabotage because that you know uh, our culture can sabotage us in multiple ways all our life but how do we how do we sabotage ourselves what is it that we do
2: yeah, um, yeah i i mean lots of ways i mean one of the main ways is um, giving up our freedom and just you know going with the flow and and not being active agents of our lives or you know and that's what Beauvoir called bad faith which is you know pretending we don't have choices when we do um some of the other ways you know one of the ways I talk about in the book is um you know, Beauvoir had a section in her book, The Second Sex, uh, on narcissism. And, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of this now, especially on, on social media, which is you know, kind of um, uh, creating an idealized image of yourself that you're you're presenting to the world, which isn't reflective of, of reality. And it's a way of, um, you know, we're masking our real appearances and we're kind of putting an image out there that suggests that, you know, we're, we're, we have it all together and, um, and that's that's a problem for Beauvoir because she's like, you know, no one is ever, you know, complete and we're actually always evolving and our beings are, are fragmentary and we're never going to be complete in, until death. So, um know i think she would have a a, have an issue with with social media in that way um and you know some some other ways that we we um uh sabotage ourselves is you know support okay further like narcissism you know supporting ourselves to to other other people or um other like um, you know, I'm trying. I'm thinking about one of the examples I put in my book is, you know, sometimes mysticism can be a form of self sabotage. You know, it's um, you know, voluntary, voluntarily subordinating ourselves or to, you know, some kind of other power, not necessarily God, but you know, some some kind of spirituality. But you know, what's interesting is also one of Beauvoir's kind of existential heroes is the mystic Saint Teresa of Avila. And she uh, Beauvoir talks about Saint Teresa as being, you know, very passionate. She Saint Teresa, you know, chooses her own her own quests, and she's not beholden to her passions. And Saint Teresa was kind of a, an iconoclast as well. She rebelled against her father to become a nun. Um, she rebelled against the Spanish Inquisition and the, the Protestant Reformation, and she also rebelled against. What was expected of a woman so she was around in the i think the 1600s i want to say um don't quote me on that but um you know and women weren't supposed to to be teachers and there she was you know advising people teaching people um uh, giving people advice and she, so she really pushed back on, on what she was supposed to do. And she was almost, you know, buried alive a bunch of times. She was almost arrested a bunch of times. so she, you know, Beauvoir thought this was, you know, an example of kind of a, a, a really awesome, someone who was pursuing their authenticity and creating themselves in, in really authentic ways.
1: Well, the thing about this that always puzzles me is that, of course, you, you may you may actually know that you would rather make another choice, but you don't make that choice. Not because you're self-deceived or bad faith, it's because you understand the consequences of what that choice would mean in terms of backlash and people, uh, all kinds of, they can be all kinds of collateral damage to your choice. Yeah, yeah. And so that requires an incredible amount of courage and willing to, if you're going to take, your freedom then you have to take the consequences of that freedom which can be quite severe i mean very severe
2: yeah you're right and you know for example st teresa faced you know really severe consequences right so i don't know if everybody's
1: in the position to do that and it doesn't yeah and it doesn't necessarily mean that people are being inauthentic they're just saying i realize I would rather do this, but I've gotta do this or I'm gonna like suffer the consequences and they're really, really hard.
2: Yeah, and I think that's true. And but you know, I think Beauvoir was very sympathetic to that because you know, authenticity isn't about, you know, going out and doing whatever the hell we want and exercising radical freedom and stuff. No, she was like, no, it's life is a tension between being for yourself and being for others. We need to take other people into account when we make decisions. But Know, we also need to live with the decision that we haven't taken the path that maybe we would have preferred to at that moment because we prioritized our relationships with other people over that choice and but what she was saying is that you know as long as we were cognizant of the choice and as long as we're not choosing that other path because of oppression or because you know where we would be punished um, if we if we did otherwise, but no, if we can, you know, make that choice with full awareness that um, of why we're doing, and you know, Beauvoir knew that you know people were in all sorts of you know really nuanced situations, and and it's really hard to judge you know the context of another person and 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 the choices that, that they make, um, and you know, she knew that these these choices that we do make are a really complex formula that goes on in our head and you know we we can't we can't judge other people for you know making making choices that maybe maybe we don't approve of and
1: so I'm kind of wondering is seeking authenticity the same as pursuing happiness or or is could you seek authenticity and become very authentic and not still not be happy
2: (laughs) yeah well yeah absolutely <laughs> you you can but i think deaf Beauvoir thought that happiness was would be a consequence of of pursuing authenticity so um and she she was very worried about um you know the, the idea of you know chasing happiness directly, but you know happiness she thought comes from embracing our freedom, you know, acknowledging the context of our lives, being lucid about the context of our lives and and taking responsibility for our choices and, you know, creating intersubjective relationships with with one another and, and our world. And, you know, this kind of, you know, she says something like happiness is never given. You know, we, you know, we need to embrace you know the ambiguity of the world, and and acknowledge there will always be tensions and conflicts with with other people. Um, but you know, the more we can uh, pursue our lives in in authentic ways, you know, the more we're probably going to be you know fi- find happiness and, and, and joy in in what we're doing.
1: So, what is the what would you like the reader to get from reading your book? I mean, what's the main what's the main idea? What would you like for this book to do for people?
2: Yeah, I would like people to realize that um, authenticity is, is possible. Um, although it's a receding goal. So what I mean is like authenticity isn't something like you, oh, suddenly I read this book and oh, suddenly, okay, yes, now I'm authentic. It's because authenticity exists in the choices we make and it exists in and through our relationships. It's, it's always a process. And so what's important is that if we orient our lives in, in authentic ways, then it's what it, what it really is, it's, it's an attitude. So I would like for people to um, take on the attitude uh, of authenticity more in their lives, and and be aware of of these mis- these mystifications that that oppress us, and try and untangle those kind of facts and myths from our lives.
1: It seems it seems that a lot of this on authenticity is wrapped up with self knowledge, knowing yourself, knowing what you where you're going, knowing what you want to become, knowing. Uh, Being aware of your situation that you're embedded in, (laughs) uh, which is a big part of it. She talks a lot about situation, about being in this, we're in a situation and uh, that's often not chosen and being aware of all that, the uh, the, uh, complexities of the situation and also your own desires of where you want to go. And that requires a lot of self-knowledge.
2: So I, I. And I think, don't mean self
1: knowledge like. Uh, I don't mean self knowledge like you. Uh, there's some authentic self inside that you're tr- somebody that you're looking for. It's meaning aware how you respond and what the possibilities are within the situation you're in.
2: Well, I think sh- the. Beauvoir's attitude is more what's important is self-learning. It's it's self-reflection. It's you know, it's not necessarily, oh, these are my desires and and this is um, where I'm going. You know, sometimes we don't we don't know um whether we want to do something until we've actually done it, until we've actually tried it and thrown ourselves into it. But it's this attitude of saying, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try this and you know, learn. About how how I am in that situation, learn about how other people are around me are, are in that situation, and so I think it's there's it's more of a a reflective um, and ongoing uh, learning learning process. And as you say, being being aware, but it's not like oh, there's all this work you have to do to, to know yourself first before you can go out in the world. No, we need to go out in the world and, and yeah. do things. Sometimes and you, is- you
1: look, you know, who you you become you become who you are by what you do and you know who you are by what you do
2: yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. but what she was you know she didn't want us to just kind of blindly plod through life no she's like okay let's let's think about where we want to go you know be courageous leap into life and you know reflect on what we're doing and and be aware and it's it's also and you talked about you know how like complexity and you know I was you know extremely attuned to the complexity of different situations which is why she wrote a lot of novels and kind of explored these kind of not just in her Uh, philosophy
1: yeah that's yeah but she didn't want to think of herself as a philosopher because she thought that her philosophy was her was in her novels
2: yeah and she she was a philosopher in, in her own right even though she claimed she wasn't I mean she wrote philosophical essays and and books but um yeah and it's not just and philosophy of course can be done through through novels and uh plays and you know poems um and in fact those kind of forms of more imaginative forms maybe they can even prompt us to you know, think about our own lives more deeply. And in fact, that was kind of Kierkegaard's um, idea. You know, he wrote novels and wrote them under pseudonyms because he wanted readers to, to challenge readers to think for themselves. And that's kind of what philosophy is doing. And I think that's what Beauvoir was doing with, with her novels as well, challenging us to to think about the, the different complexities and contexts of, of people in, in different situations.
1: Okay, well, Sky, thank you for your time. Uh, Thank you very much. Thanks, Lillian. And yeah, and thank you to our listeners for another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. This is your host, Lillian Barger.